Welcome to the LSU NCBRT Preparedness Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Markle. I'm a Curriculum Development Specialist here at NCBRT, and I work in collaboration with subject matter experts to create valuable and timely training for the responder community. The National Center for Biomedical Research and Training provides mobile training to both the national and international emergency response community. Today on the podcast, we're continuing our conversation with Jeff Woody, Joe Reardon, and Lorenzo Alba about the disruptions COVID-19 has caused in the food and agriculture sector and how to plan for a crisis. Can you sort of dive into how food distribution has changed in the wake of COVID-19? Lorenzo, you want to start? Yeah, for for us, I mean, oh my gosh, we've had to purchase more food than ever which is something that we don't normally do. We kind of pride ourselves on acquiring food in different ways. But when you actually spend money on it as a nonprofit, man, where are we going to get the money from? What's going to happen here? You know, exactly what uh, Joe was saying earlier, you know, how do we spend this money if we do get it? You know, how do we get it spent by the, by the time that they require us to spend it by? Where do we put the food? Uh, so it, it changed quite a bit for us. Uh, one of the very first things we actually had to do was we, we called the cold storage facility here in, in our county. We asked him if we could do a contract with them just in case that we had to get food put in there. The other thing that we did was we rented a couple of refrigerated trailers to have on site just because we wanted to make sure we had enough food to go around. Uh, and the amount of food that we we're actually purchasing has probably it's going to probably go a little bit more than double what we spent last year just on food. And it's because we couldn't rescue food from the grocery stores. A lot of the agricultural community didn't have a lot of that food rescue food available either. Uh, so all of a sudden we're having to purchase the food uh, from uh, vendors and making sure they had it. And then no food drives during this time. We had to rely on monetary donations. So all the in-kind donations kind of went out the door and actually they, that, those numbers are down about 54, 55% for the year. And that was a game changer for us. That means, oh my gosh, we need to spend money. We need to make sure that we're buying the right foods. Uh, and we just, we just began to make calls. We started here locally. We started buying food from local ranchers, farmers, uh, from vendors, just to make sure that we had exactly what we needed to serve everybody here. One of the best things we did, we started buying a local beef and use a processor in New Mexico and uh, they deliver it uh, a few thousand pounds at a time. Uh, it, where we are, um, you know, you could use ground beef for everything. You know, culturally, it's the, the perfect product to give out at a food pantry. Boy, we took advantage of that. You know, we had one uh, rancher and he not only donated beef, but, you know, he was able to get some other ranchers to donate some animals uh, to get processed. And uh, then we'd have it delivered. Uh, we bought additional uh, um, um, directly from the process, additional beef directly from the processor. Uh, we'll probably do that before the year's up one more time uh, because we want to continue that relationship with them throughout the spring uh, while this is going on. But we wanted to make sure that we bought as much of it locally as we could. Um, is that possible all the time? No, but we also have a big state, you know, and having Secretary Whitty on our team. And he can direct us to the right people. Um, that makes a big difference for us. Um, and I think, you know, we have a great food bank at Roadrunner. 
They do a lot of really good things. They have a big state to cover. So we also rely on them tremendously. We were pushing them to the edge on logistics just because they only can do so much. Um, but it did change a lot, Ashley. It was a, it, it was a difficult thing to, to see through. Uh, we had to schedule people to come in earlier just to get food in order, to get it out. We're limited on space, like I said, but the families are receiving anywhere from 85 to 90 pounds of food every time they come here. That's about a, a little bit over a week's worth of food, you know, and that's just tremendous. That's going to be a super help to those families that are struggling either with unemployment or uh, other issues that are happening during this COVID-19 crisis. So we've adjusted well. Uh, it took some time to make the adjustments. Um, right now, what we're trying to figure out is what's going to happen uh, in January and February. Um, we don't know. We, we're just waiting. I'm hoping that uh, they continue to get uh, uh, um, money out to the um, families so that they can purchase some of the food. But we'll be here for them if they can't. And we will be here for them if they can't do it. No, I, I want to add on to what both of the speakers have shared. And when and we looked at, from a nation food supply, in many cases, we're very dependent on national companies to provide an awful lot of our, our food. But what we really realized in this is food is critical infrastructure and the Department of Homeland Security correctly identifies that. But also the ability to produce that food at a local level, being able for a community to be sustainable and feed itself. Well, what we've seen with the COVID-19 pandemic is also we've identified areas in which we need greater investment. This investment is in the terms of local meat and poultry processing, those that would uh, grow cattle, if you will, the ranchers and, and that grow swine or, or cattle, needing those to be processed and distributed and sold. We saw weaknesses in that. And so we put programs in place to better invest and to expand those operations but not only in cattle and swine production, but also in seafood production. And this can be true in other areas as well. But we've seen some, some problems there. We've seen where there'd be some greater investments in growing the ability for us to process those local foods, distribute those local foods, and get them out in the community as well. These national products have great benefit to us in the context of keeping price down, the availability of food in, in the larger sector, but it's equally important that we have local production of products, of, of processing and products so that we can process those animals locally that are grown on these farms, raised in these communities, and that they can be done so in, in, a, in a timely way. So there is some take-home messages in this that we need greater investment in supporting the, uh, the growth of that uh, local industry. I think Joe and, and Lorenzo hit the nail on the head. It's the local movement. The people realize just how important and how critical their local uh, food production was. And in early on, you know, uh, probably midsummer, uh, you, you started going around to the stores and looking. There was no, you could not buy a freezer anywhere in the United States. Uh, in this fall, you could not buy canning jars. Uh, and who, who would have ever thought of that? People got away from canning years ago, and all of a sudden now you can't buy a jar in any of the stores in, in, in most of the areas. So I think when you look to the future, you're looking at people who are recognizing that importance of self-sustained food in their, in their home environment. You're, you're going to see people um, 
you know, will we go back to the 48, 51%? I don't think so. I think, I think it's going to shift to more home consumption. People now have the infrastructure at home. If they were fortunate enough to get a freezer and canning jars to, to make it a little longer without going to the grocery store every two or three days. People also got tired of standing in lines at grocery stores. And so they would buy in bulk. Um, so I, I think you're going to see a little bit of, of, of that dynamic hold out into the future uh, when we, we look at that. And, and Joe's exactly right. We have to continue to invest in that local infrastructure to do the processing. You know, in New Mexico, we have just, we've got five uh, small meat processors, one medium size, but the rest of them are very small that are USDA inspected. I suspect over the next uh, three to five years, we'll have several more come into the state because the demand is there for local beef. If I could just add on to that too, it, it actually, you know, put the spotlight on food insecurity in our state. Um, it's always been an issue here in New Mexico, but with COVID, the spotlight was on us. And all of a sudden it, it became a big issue to our leaders in Santa Fe, to local leaders, you know, it, it, regional leaders. It just, it just became a, a, something that needed to be talked about. And it did begin at the local level because that's the first thing that we were directed to do. I serve on a committee that meets once every couple of weeks and it's got uh, uh, committee members from all over the state and some legislators in it. I tell you, knowing what everybody is trying to do to take care of the area that they live in. New Mexico is the fifth largest state in the nation. And just to try to take care of food insecurity or make sure that there's just food in those areas. Because there's a lot of virtually food deserts here. Uh, and we need to just try to get the food out there, but it's right there in our backyard. It's right there. We just don't think about it and we don't talk about it enough. And I think that this put it in the forefront where it does need to be talked about quite a bit more. And absolutely, I think uh, it makes a big difference when you're buying local, when you're trying to, to take care of, uh, of the communities by sourcing local. I think that's the most important thing we can do, even as a feeding agency like ours. Um, we talked a little bit about the processing of animals. Um, can you talk a little bit about the disruption in animal processing and what, what impact that's had? Boy, let me let me start off with that one. You know, in the when COVID started out, we had several meatpacking plants that went down, uh, had to close for for two weeks because of of their staff having uh, COVID issues. You know, when in the United States, we've got four basically four big processing plants for beef, and when one of those goes down, it really backs things up. We have uh, producers in New Mexico now that that if you have a beef and you want to get it processed at a at a USDA or or even a custom processing facility, it's six months out. Six months out. So think about that. If you've got a, a beef that's ready to go today, that's a thousand to fifteen hundred pounds. Uh, wait, and you've got to wait another six months to get that thing, get that beef processed. It's, it's impossible. You can't hold them that long. We have people coming into our state from places like Arizona, Colorado, Oklahoma, and Texas, only because, not because we have the capacity, it's just they were smart enough to, to schedule six months out. You know, I personally, I scheduled a processing date even before I owned the steer I was going to have processed because I knew what the weights were going to be. So, so you had a, we had a tremendous backup in the, uh, in the processing area. 
that carried over into the grocery stores. And so there was a lot of frustration because you had ranchers who had beef ready to go. You had consumers who wanted to buy beef and they couldn't get it in the grocery stores because the, the big four were, were backed up and closed uh, for that two weeks. A lot of changes happened in the processing area. A lot of changes happened in food service because of that protections went into place to help protect the, the employees. But but having a six month backlog is, and it's still there. Uh, it's something we're still dealing with. And, and we'll probably be dealing with it for quite some time because of that initial backup. Yeah, let me add on to what Director Woody said. And he talked about the, the backup and from the local processing capacity. What we saw also, this same thing was happening with our national producers. We saw uh, stories all across the country and where the swine industry were being uh, backed up, the number of animals that were being grown that are in that process of fairing, winning, growing and finishing to go into that processing chain. When we saw these companies reduce their capacity by 40 to 60% in the way their daily, weekly capacity, we also saw uh, an absentee rate inside these larger processing facilities of, of 20 to 30 and, and 40% in some cases then those animals that otherwise would be going through that process are beginning to back up in the supply chain. That would be true of swine. That would be true of poultry as well. And even in the milk supply, you heard across the country stories of the dairies actually dumping the milk. Um, and let me tell you, there's nothing that hurts a, a rancher or a farmer more than the, something that they cared for not being able to make its way to market. That's a last resort for those things to happen. But when you look at the milk supply, the amount of milk that otherwise that are coming from these dairy, these farms, from these dairies and these cows milking twice or three times a day, that milk has to go somewhere. And when all the schools are shut down and all the restaurants are shut down, those cows are still producing milk. And so there's not a quick place for that milk to find itself in commerce. And so there was dumping of milk across the country. The same thing with dealing with those animals that are in that supply chain where there's major disruption. What you don't want is to turn that disruption in the supply or the processing of those animals into an animal welfare issue. So you had to look for ways to get those animals out of that supply chain and to do so in a very humane way. Or if there was alternatives in which those products would have some value in the, in the uh, supply chain in, in other ways. And so uh, there's no doubt that this pandemic has shown us where our weaknesses are shown us areas that we need greater investment with local processing, but also required us to look at when these things come along that disrupt the ability to grow, process, and distribute these animals. How do we deal with that and how do we do so in a humane way? Um, so there's a lot of work to, to be done down the road. And in many cases, states like ours and others have been now on the forefront looking at ways to do this and to do it in a way that is humane and responsible. I know we benefited from from some of these issues and it was we get a call from Dairy Max in Texas and Lorenzo can you take milk from you know they had to figure out different ways to get the milk out they were representing a lot of the New Mexico dairies and we're like okay what do we do here uh, how much can we take we knew what we could take because we had already made arrangements with for cold storage but we didn't have a way to go get it because we technically can't cross state lines as a, as a food bank. So um, 
we actually got one of our vendors, Benny Keith, which they were gracious enough to uh, schedule one of their drivers to go pick up the food, for, go pick up the milk for us and bring it back to New Mexico. A couple of thousand gallons got distributed in about a week and a half. Uh, and that's, those are the kind of things that uh, I think, uh, again, opened our eyes to what was really happening here. And I completely agree with Secretary Whitty and with Secretary Reardon on this. It's just unbelievable. We did learn a lot of lessons and this was definitely one of them. It was just sad to see some of the things that were going on uh, with food. Uh, that's one of my pet peeves is food waste. And I just can't even begin to tell you how sad that was for us to see. So whenever we could actually help out by taking some of it and, and distributing it to families, that was absolutely something we were game to do. It was a challenge, not only in the beef and poultry and pork industry, you know, as Joe and, and Lorenzo talked about the dairy dairy side as well, when you had restaurants that closed down, you had you had cheese plants that were geared 100% towards restaurant uh, sales, but also in the in the fruit and vegetable arena too, because, you know, the thing with agriculture is when it's ready, it's ready. And uh, you have field crops, vegetable crops that were ready to be picked and they couldn't go anywhere. And, and so they all of a sudden become rotten in the field or, or fruit in, in some cases we call that soil conditioners in other cases we call it food waste, but it, it was a big challenge because you only have a short window of time to harvest. And, and so we spent a lot of time in our department of agriculture. I know Joe probably did too, trying to find alternate markets for these uh, crops that just couldn't go to their originally intended uh, home. Lorenzo, you mentioned um, donations as such an important part of um, your operation. And um, with so many things in flux now, um, how have you had to change your plan to gather funds to support uh, your operations at the food bank? Every year we build a resource plan on how we're going to go about fundraising. We have a schedule on grants we're going to write. We have a schedule on appeals we're going to do. We put it together with our marketing plan. And as soon as about March 11th hit, we pretty much just tore it up. There was nothing we could absolutely follow from there. Um, some of the major food drives that we had um, planned out, uh, there's a Baton Death March event here, and we garner about 40 to 50,000 pounds of food from them. Uh, Stamp Out Hunger, that was following right after that in May. That's another 40 to 50,000 pounds of food that come in from donations. A lot of the events we had planned out where we were going to bring some money and taste of Las Cruces and some others, we didn't know what we were going to do. The, the, the smartest thing we did, as I said earlier, was we just went a little bit crazy on the social networks, getting information out to people about um, what we were doing, uh, about the safety precautions. We were asking people to take safety precautions. We were um, sending out messages from the CDC, from the New Mexico Department of Health on testing and wearing masks. And the more proactive we were, the more donations started coming in. It was a pretty unprecedented thing that began to happen. But I think probably the thing that really changed everything for us initially was that the city of Las Cruces City Council and mayor stepped up and decided to, that they were gonna fund some nonprofits that really needed the assistance right off the bat. So we were thinking, okay, we're gonna to have to go into our nest egg and spend money on buying food. Uh, they came out immediately with funding. Um, they've doubled that funding and as much as tripled it with their CDBG funding as well uh, in the last year. Without uh, trying to add a bunch of detail to this, uh, in a nutshell, my 
my small budget for the year was 670,000 that I had planned for 2020. Um, right now, our, our revenue is probably gonna exceed a million dollars. Our expenses are for sure gonna uh, be right around a million dollars. Um, it, it's just been that kind of year. We live in a community and in a state that is incredibly generous. Uh, and, uh, and that's exactly what we saw. Uh, it's been a big blessing to serve this community that way, but we had to change everything. Um, the angles we took, uh, how we wanted to make sure that we partnered with other agencies to offset costs on purchasing, to offset costs on, on serving the same demographic. Um, and it really helped tremendously. It helped tremendously. All the while keeping in touch with key leaders in our community, legislators, um, the mayor and city council, the county, the county commissioners, and letting them know what was happening on a regular basis. They all came out and really stepped up and helped us. Even the grocers that um, normally would pick up quite a bit of food. Uh, I'll just share a quick story with you, but Albertsons United, they are awesome partners. And uh, they saw that we were beginning to spend a lot of money. We started buying food from them for Thanksgiving because we couldn't find it anywhere else. We couldn't find turkeys. We couldn't find, um, and we wanted to see if there was a way we could help. So we bought them, ended up buying most of the big birds that they weren't selling at the grocery store. So we were getting like 20, 24 pounders that we were gonna give out in a distribution that we were doing at New Mexico State University. Well, they saw what we were doing. They reached out to us. They made a commitment of $50,000 to us so that we could purchase that food. And then the next week after we did everything, uh, I get a check in the mail, it's for 100,000. And that is what they wanted to do. They wanted to make sure that agencies like ours that were going above and beyond to make sure that we kept hope alive in the communities were taken care of. And you know, all along we've had a great relationship with the grocers that help us, Walmart and Albertsons and some of the local grocers here. I can tell you right now that nothing like this has ever happened. <laughs> and it was a tremendous uh, humbling experience to, uh, to be able to talk about that with people. And you're some of the first people who actually shared this story with. And I can tell you that uh, that's going to help us tremendously. I usually go into the new year worried about funding for the first couple of months. That's not going to happen this year. We're going to be prepared. So um, we're letting the community know that we're ready. 2021. You know, the, the one thing I would add, and, and this really fits in there, is that, you know, the, the availability of staff for Lorenzo or, or, or Secretary Whitty or even our Department of Agriculture, at the, as, as we've worked through these challenges in food production, distribution, sales, service, growth, processing, we've also had a huge responsibility to ensure that the workers that are in each of these communities are safe, that they have the tools they need to be safe, PPE. We need it in the languages that they understand. We need that also within the Department of Agriculture. And so as we understand the, the isolation processes, the quarantine processes, and then how that can disrupt your ability to distribute those foods uh, to those communities, either in a warehouse setting or a transportation setting or a production setting. And so we've been working with these communities at the same time getting them the PPE that they need, getting them the communication things that they need to understand how to wear it, how to use it, not only in the industrial setting, 
but in the transportation going from work to home. But not only in the, the working environment, the transportation sector, but in the socialization aspect, in the community in which they live, um, and then some of the, uh, the churches in those communities to help us distribute. And then those PPE products and working with our other institutions or even at the university with extension. And so this whole thing has been um, a challenge and, and an opportunity to work with these other communities also in ensuring the safety of our workers so that we can distribute these foods that Lorenzo is talking about. We can store them safely, we can triage them, and then we can get them out into the communities. And that takes workers to do that. So at the same time, we've got to ensure the safety of these workers that they can do so in a manner that doesn't present a risk to themselves or to others. I think one of the biggest challenges that we, that we saw out there was, was typically we understand the agriculture industry, but some of the folks dealing with, with now dealing with agriculture departments of health, uh, some of your departments of environment, you know, whatever they are in the various states, they really didn't understand that agriculture is 24 seven, 365. And we're, it's not an eight to five uh, kind of environment. It, and a lot of the initial discussions that were coming out, even in, in Washington, D.C. and other places, were, were geared towards that eight to five sector. And you start talking about three shifts and, and how, you know, cows have to be milked uh, sometimes two or three times a day, depending on, on the setup of an individual dairy. It's, you know, it's around the clock kind of a thing. So it also provided us a great opportunity to, to educate others on just how complex the ag, ag system, the food system is. How does the classification of food processing workers as essential workers affect how these individuals are able to work during this time? Let me uh, take, a, take a stab at, at answering that. That's a great question. Um, and so, you know, you go back and look at what Department of Homeland Security has to find as critical infrastructure. And then obviously agriculture is a key component of that. And then if you start from that and CDC's interpretation of that and Homeland Security, it defines those jobs in that critical sector as what's essential workers. And what the definition of essential workers plays a very critical role in understanding your obligation to quarantine, your ob obligation to isolate, if you will, and what that means to the entire agriculture sector. And so many of us had an awareness of it, but over the last, since March of this year, we've become very in tune to exactly what it means and how that can impact food production, distribution, all across that agriculture sector. And so it does play a very critical role. So CDC actually says all agriculture workers are essential, and we believe they are as well, meaning that they are involved in the the production or distribution of food in our laboratories in those processes that are, that are critical to ensure the adequacy of a food supply. It does expand greatly beyond that into fiber and in greens and other areas, greenery and nurseries and other areas. But the one that's been most prevalent for us is the production of food supply and getting those products to market. And so why is that important, that classification as an essential worker? Or CDC has issued some guidance, and we're all familiar with it. We've been sharing and communicating with our industry partners that we are working with more closely than ever. But if you're an essential worker, uh, by definition, in the critical infrastructure and agriculture, and CDC classifies you as an essential worker, what that means is that you can continue to work in those jobs 
provided that you're asymptomatic. So therefore, under the quarantine aspects of close contact, if you're not an essential worker, then you would have to quarantine for that quarantine period of, of 14 days and now 10 days. The CDC has changed it. So if you're a non-essential worker, if you've been exposed to someone with COVID, you would be uh, required to immediately quarantine for is up to 14 days. But if you're an essential worker, as defined by Homeland Security, then you can continue to return to your workplace, provided that you remain asymptomatic. And that's really done under the aspect to give you a good example. And, and uh, Secretary Whitty talked about dairy operations. If you had a positive employee inside a dairy operation that would expose other workers inside that, that dairy milking operation, then uh, without the essential classification and all those workers that you had been in contact with for more than 15 minutes in a 24-hour period would be obligated to quarantine. Well, in many cases, that could be the entire workforce of that dairy. Well, those, those dairy, those cows still have to be milked. That milk still has to be packaged and distributed and produced and sent out to the community to feed us. But if it wasn't for the essential classification, then those workers otherwise would be quarantined. But because they are essential workers, CDC offers some exceptions. Those workers can return back to, to production, provided that they remain asymptomatic. And so that's very, very important in, in business continuity. Well, that, thing, that also applies not only in the dairy industry, but all other aspects of agriculture. Now, it is true that CDC has issued some supplemental information saying that essential worker has to be critical to the continuing operation of that function. It just doesn't mean that that employee is employed in that community, but their role and their job is critical, critical to the overall operation of that facility. So these terms have meaning and value and being classified as an essential worker have plays a tremendous role in business continuity. You know, I, I remember the discussion when the president first issued the, the emergency declaration for COVID. I was having discussions with the White House over over the next step. And the next step, in my opinion, was was declaring what was critical infrastructure. And uh, you know, it was a few weeks later that the the or a few maybe a week later, the White House came out with their initial list. We had a chance to review that, and 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 that really led to that essential worker uh, classification. But one thing that everybody has to keep in mind, each state can operate independent of the federal. That's guidance. That's Homeland Security guidance on, on what is an essential worker and, and an essential uh, a business. Every state has that opportunity to then uh, redefine that and make it a little more uh, uh, strict if, if they so desire. We had that discussion in New Mexico over several uh because there's always gray areas, auctions, cattle auctions, uh, things like that. Uh, essential to an agricultural operation, if you don't have a place to market your, your product, and a, and a livestock auction is, is, is an example of that, then, then it's really tough, especially when they're, they're ready to go to market. So, so there is always that, there's always that gray area that we had to, to get involved in. One of the other issues we had to deal with is people thought that because they were essential, they were exempt from all of the requirements. 
And so there was a quite a bit of stress amongst uh, those essential agents, essential businesses, when they found out that they still had to follow COVID practices. If they had workers that were uh, COVID positive, they had to stay home and, and that kind of thing. In, initially, that's what caused some of our, our, our heartache, I would say, in some of those essential businesses is, is, is figuring out how to isolate and keep those essential staff productive and so you can keep the operation going. In, in New Mexico, we've actually had to go one step further with some of these because we found that some of those folks that were asymptomatic were in fact spreading it and causing uh, symptomatic uh, symptoms to show up in, in coworkers. We have, we have businesses that are essential uh, that were you know, in the processing food distribution area that we've had to, that our environment department closed down because their workers they were getting, instead of two or three cases a, a week, they were getting over 50 um, amongst their employees. And, and it wasn't happening at the operation. What was happening, it was, it was the, the family, friends, and, and neighbors were, were causing the, the spread, uh, but they were bringing that to the office. So a lot of, of discussion and a lot of implications over this COVID practice. Firms have gone, a lot of the companies have gone over and above with their OSHA, I'll call them OSHA, their occupational safety uh, uh, protocols in protecting their staff, putting up plexiglass, doing triple uh, uh, face masks and, and, and face coverings and PPE and that kind of thing. So a lot of changes have happened trying to, to head off the, the COVID surge that's happened over the past uh, month or so. I think with us, one of the things we had to do was try to figure out a way to make sure that people could come back to work. Um, we didn't want them running around the community uh, when they weren't at work. We've had very suggestive conversations with them about how, how they should uh, comport themselves uh, in public. The other thing we did was we decided that we wanted to make sure that we could maybe avoid them going to the grocery stores or to do these things that maybe they were going more often uh, than they should. We began to buy essential uh, products for them for their homes, the employees, so they didn't have to go get those, you know, pro meats, poultry, dairy products, toilet paper, uh, these things, uh, paper products, these things that they would normally go get at a grocery store because of whatever they need that they had. Uh, we just had our operations guys say, you know what, order this for the staff, have it available here for them, set it aside for them. Uh, and that's really made a big difference. Being a food pantry also allows us to be able to take care of our employees uh, when it comes to some of those needs. So it would be easier for us to just put them in our system as if they were clients and go ahead and take care of them with groceries that they need here uh, instead of letting, telling them to go out to the grocery store and get this. So we had to do little things like that, um, giving, them, uh, giving them additional PPE to take home for their families. Uh, those things uh, also made a difference and communicating with them regularly uh, on the things they should be doing at home. Make sure you're disinfecting your house regularly. Make sure you're uh, getting your kids to wash their hands on a regular basis. You know, give them ideas on how to do it in a fun way. Uh, even here at work, you know, doing it in a, in a very way that, in a way that's a little, at least a little entertaining for everybody. It's, it's just a little too intense if you just are rigid about everything. Uh, and we just have fun with it. We did a mask up and did a little video that we put on our Facebook of all our employees telling everybody to mask up. 
But honestly, those little things really make a big difference to try to keep them essential as, as uh, Secretary Reardon says, man, they, everybody had the wrong idea initially, you know? <laughs> I, I'm like, whoa, it's not really what that means. This, this is what it means, you know? Uh, and now that, now that we know what we have to do, I, I think it's made a difference for us. You know, we're knocking on wood that uh, we don't have to deal with uh, another case uh, anytime soon. But if that happens, we'll be prepared. We'll know what to do. We got good direction from um, the Department of Health here and, and other uh, departments at the state level. So we're ready if anything does happen. Uh, but we are absolutely essential. As a matter of fact, I just got some um, T-shirts made for my staff that have our logo and it says essential on it. <laughs> just to have a little fun with it, you know. And, and, and I think so far, you know, we've talked about our, our uh, full-time type employees. You know, at Department of Agriculture, we also hire seasonal employees that do our, our grading of our produce, our peanuts, and that kind of thing. We've had to deal with it just like the farmers have had. You know, you've got seasonal, what we, our seasonal staff will do inspections in Texas or Georgia, and in, they follow the, the crop just like uh, the farm workers do as well. And, uh, you know, same protocols go into play there. We have in our, in our agricultural farming community, you know, we, we produce a lot of onions, lettuce, cabbage, chili. A lot of those employer employees will come out of Mexico or other countries. COVID put a stop to that. Uh, cross-border crossing was, was not happening. You had, and these are people who are legal to work in the United States. They, they do it on a regular basis. They just live on the other side of the border. You know, if for us in New Mexico, Mexico is not another country. It's just our neighboring state. And a lot of our, our friends and, and in many cases, family of our, uh, of our employees, they just live across the border. Um, to, to us, it's not a big deal. But it was a big deal with COVID because that stopped. And all of a sudden, we had shortages of labor in, in the fields to pick the onions, to pick the, the chili. And so we had to deal with a number of issues just, just along those lines as well. Yeah, and, and one of the things that's critically important to say here is that in the farming community, these farmers that grow these commodities and produce these products, the availability for those workers to help harvest and pack and distribute that is the very foundation of ensuring business continuity. And so what we saw in our farming community and our public health community and our agriculture community is an appreciation of the value that these workers bring to that community. But at the same time, the responsibility that we had to help protect them in their working environment, in their transportation venues and the processes there and the socialization at home. Uh, and so we did bring uh, uh, over a million PPE were distributed in the agriculture community in our state to make sure that the masks and the gloves and the hand sanitizers were available to all those working in the agriculture community. At the same time, we increased the testing sites across the states, not only where they work, but also the area that they lived. Um, and so not only testing those workers that are essential workers, but it is actually making that uh, testing available to their family members because a safe workforce and a healthy workforce is an available workforce. And so nowhere did we see anyone taking advantages of these essential worker classifications in any way to compromise the safety and the welfare of those workers. What we saw is that everybody was on board working together to bring the educational aspects of this, 
the PPE materials that they need to be safe, and the testing when there was question around their personal health as well. So it was a holistic approach, and we saw a great response from the agriculture community, either in the way on the farm and in the industrial setting as well. 100% agree. Thank you. There's been a lot of talk about the upcoming availability of a COVID vaccine. How might that affect essential workers in these food facilities? Yeah, let, let me start with that. Obviously, you know, the federal government has said that the states will have an opportunity to prioritize the, the distribution of these vaccines to ensure that the community that needs it the most are the ones that gets it first. Everybody can't be first. And so there has to be a prioritization scheme. And so what we've seen here in North Carolina, and you may hear from Secretary Whitty uh, down in New Mexico, uh, different, or it may be the same. Uh, obviously, our healthcare workers, those that are on the front lines every day, those in hospitals and nursing homes and other places that are taking care of those sick people, they need vaccines first. Uh, and and we, there's no question whatsoever around that. What we also have seen here in our state, though, in that phase one, if you will, if you are a food worker and you have more than two underlying health issues, then you're in that same classification with the healthcare workers. Food production is important. You know, we're dealing with a pandemic. What we don't need to be dealing with a food crisis at the very same time. So these food and agriculture workers are important. And so in our state, they have classified those agriculture workers, those frontline food workers, working in the meat and poultry processing plants, seafood processing plant, other processing plants. They are in that first phase if, if any of those workers would have any underlying issues. Uh, in phase two would be your food workers, if you will, that were not in phase one, meaning the food frontline food workers that had no underlying issues are in phase two, and then the general public would then be in phase three. So you have seen a prioritization of those food workers to ensure that we can continue to process food and feed ourselves. And we think that this is, is the right approach here. And that's what we've seen here in North Carolina. Yeah, I think, I think you're going to see the same kind of thing across the country. The, the issue is going to be supply. We were, we were having a discussion with the governor's office the other day and, and New Mexico is one of the few state, three states, I think that, that partnered with uh, one of the companies about getting an initial distribution. But by the time you you take out uh, the the people at the federal level, the healthcare and and whatnot, there's still very few doses available for for frontline workers, even on the essential side. But it's all about prioritization and and uh, and having that ready for when the supply is available. The the other challenge I think we're going to have across the country with vaccines is is availability, not only availability but acceptance. You know the flu, the flu shots available now. How many people actually take those? Uh, you're you're going to see the same kind of resistance probably with with COVID, but at least we can start getting ahead of the curve with with this. Yeah, those are the conversations that I'm hearing too. Is that what Secretary Whitty said too? Is the acceptance of it? You know, I have I've had employees ask me about it. Uh, we've had uh, some of our clients ask us about it. Uh, uh, it's just something that's being talked about in our community and just don't know. Here in uh, Doñana County, we have some major government agencies, you know, NASA's here. We have uh, White Sands Missile Range uh, Defense Department here. You know, what are going to be the requirements for them and their families uh, right now? What are going to be the requirements for uh, the big grocers, 
That's another question. Are they going to be considered uh, uh, food workers, even if some of them aren't? Those questions are arising on a regular basis here on, on some of the committees I serve on here. And we just, it's just, the, again, we're going back to the whole uncertainty of it. But quite honestly, uh, the vaccine, I think, will be a game changer, God willing. Uh, and, and we'll keep everything on track. I'm looking forward to that actually happening. Thank you to Jeff, Joe, and Lorenzo for coming on the podcast to share their knowledge with us today. Next week, we'll continue our conversation with Jeff, Joe, and Lorenzo about the disruptions COVID-19 has caused in the food and agriculture sector, as well as how to plan for a crisis. If you have any questions or topic suggestions for future episodes, please send us an email at podcast at ncbrt.lsu.edu. Make sure you subscribe to the LSU NCBRT Preparedness Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, and we'll see you again next time.